Fowler Museum is honored to present The Map in the Territory, 100 Years of Collecting at UCLA. It's an exhibition that celebrates the history of collections on the campus of UCLA, bringing together a wide variety of objects from all different kinds of disciplines, each with their own history and their own associations with the history of the campus. The UCLA Library is loaning 59 items to the map in the territory. One of the items is the hand-drawn title page from Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles from 1950. The Martian Chronicles is a compilation of short stories that speak to the terror of nuclear apocalypse, the specter of racism, as well as what it means to make a colony in a place where other people already live. We have a small collection of Bradbury materials given by him in 1956. A lot of times what a library holds in a literary archive like Ray Bradbury's are evidence of the working process of creating a final book. And that's what these are. A designer works by hand to create kind of a mock-up for what the final title page is gonna look like. And then it gets sent off to the typographer. Now the typographer is gonna translate this into metal type, existing metal type that he lays out. Now they had to create um, you know, a little um, relief print um, block for the rocket here, taking off from the book. He gave us the materials in 56, which actually, I gotta say, this was, you know, still in the, like, the prime of his writing. It's a very small amount, but, you know, when you think about it, it's probably, it contains within it at least one typescript of one of the seminal science fiction books in all of American science fiction, you know, the Martian Chronicles. People who don't even like science fiction have heard of the Martian Chronicles. Even as it reflects Bradbury's sometimes problematic perspectives on race and gender, the Martian Chronicles and his other works offer us the chance to look unsparingly at the world around us, to ask, what direction are we headed in? And then, is that the direction we really want to go? Good evening, I'm Joe Montaigne. On behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I'd like to welcome you to a celebration of my late friend Ray Bradbury's 100th birthday. Zocalo's mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything is free and everyone is welcome. Find out more on ZocaloPublicSquare.org. Now, Ray would often say that he wasn't trying to predict the future, he was trying to prevent it. So tonight we will be talking about exactly this. Are we living in a world Ray Bradbury tried to prevent? I wish we could all be together in person celebrating this great man's life, but instead of birthday candles, I hope each of you watching today represents a point of light in this dark world. For all his prescient warnings, Ray had a profound sense of hope for the future, and that's my wish for you all here today. Today's discussion is presented in partnership with the Fowler Museum at UCLA and is moderated by Oscar Villalone, the managing editor of Ziziva. Over to you, Oscar. Hello, and welcome to Zocalo Public Square. I'm Oscar Villalone, the managing editor of the literary journal Ziziva. I'll be your moderator for tonight's conversation. I'm thrilled to be here to celebrate what would have been Ray Bradbury's 100th <clears throat> birthday and to introduce our panelists for tonight. 
With us are Michael Bennett. He's a research professor in Arizona State University School for the Future of Innovation and Society, the Center for Science and the Imagination, and the Risk Innovation Lab, as well as a lecturer in the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. He studies international property law, uh, excuse me, intellectual property law, science and technology policy, and the societal implications of emerging technologies. Also with us is Jonathan R. Eller. He's the director of the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at Indiana University, the editor of and longtime friend of Ray Bradbury. He has published several books on Ray Bradbury's life and work, including his most recent biography, Bradbury Beyond Apollo, which was released just this week. And Lillian Rivera, she's a writer and the author of the children's books, Goldie Vance, The Hotel Who Done It, Feeling and Dreams, The Education of Margot Sanchez, and the young adult novel, Never Look Back, uh, coming out in September. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Times, and Elton in just a few publications. So first of all, welcome uh, all of you uh, for joining us tonight, John, William, and Michael. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hope you're all doing well. Uh, so uh, let's get started. Given tonight's topic, I thought we could talk about two particular books of the nearly two dozen uh, Ray Bradbury authored, uh, two books I think speak to him as an unassuming sage, warning us that we are too ignorant about ourselves, perhaps uh, too distracted by the gleaming technologies we clever humans are so adept at crafting. I'm thinking of Fahrenheit 451 and the Martian Chronicles. So let's start with the Martian Chronicles. When I read it uh, for the first time in middle school, it affected me uh, greatly. Uh, there's the melancholy of space travel, the both familiarity and exoticness of the technology. But I also know that as a kid, the book's themes didn't quite land completely. And here I'm talking about colonialism of earthlings, Americans really, uh, displacing other civilizations. Interestingly enough, a civilization of brown-skinned and golden-eyed Martians. Uh, Lillian, I know that you recently reread the book could you talk about the ways the Martian Chronicles spoke to you this time around? Reread it, and I was so I was so happy when I was asked to be a part of this conversation because it was just something that was so fresh in my mind. And um, when I read it, I must have been nine or ten years old, and I was living in the Bronx, uh, New York, where I'm from, and I was living in the housing projects. So here I am. Someone must have left it around, and I picked it up and I read it. And you're right, some of the themes, obviously, I couldn't quite grasp, but there were moments in that book that kept with me for ages. And there's, there's this really like clear moment when I was reading um, the third expedition. And mm. there's, this, there's, there, there's always this idea of like coming back and forth and seeing, um, seeing people just come back like as a, a shape-shifting Martian and this idea of um, the Martian ruins as well. And um, so this, I, this, there's this thing, this concept of like, um, you know, coming back and forth and being like this social experiment and colonizing these areas. And I, and, you know, when I read it back, I was, con I was thinking about Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. which is where my family's from. And I think, and I thought about it being a colonized, you know, an island colonized by the US before that colonized by Spain. And, you know, all those concepts being used of like, oh, we're bringing in religion or we're going to help the savages or we're going constantly. Right. This is something that, you know, was it was was I was raised in. 
So reading the Martian Chronicles, once again, it just brought back those ideas of like imperialism, this idea of we're better and hence we'll bring in the good. But it's really also about stripping all the good out of it. It's really also about um, imposing this, you know, diseases. <laughs> it's really about, you know, these ruins and walking through these ruins and seeing what, what was, what once was. And I was so, so captivated by this, by these themes that Ray, you know, wrote so vividly and, and still stuck with me as, a, as such a young child and not be aware of how it's going to affect me even as a grown-up, even in my own work right now. Right. John, I see you nodding. Oh, Lilium has really hit, hit it uh, very well with, uh, uh, especially the reaction to the, the Mars is Heaven or the third expedition. I mean, that's got to be one of Bradbury's most famous terror stories. Uh, and it's right there in the, in the Martian Chronicles. Um, that's his breakout book in 1950. Uh, he had already published uh, Dark Carnival, uh, later reprised in the October Country, because he was actually better earlier with horror stories and supernatural mm. and, mm. and weird tales. But in the second half of the 1940s, he started really hitting his stride with these stories about the planet Mars. And he'd go through various scenarios. And what I think was forming the bedrock for him was he was very much in tune with, uh, again, what, what Lilium uh, alluded to, the, the, the 500 year explorations of the new world by the European world, uh, the destruction basically of, of, of civilizations uh, native to this, uh, to this continent. Uh, but romantically, he'd get to the West Coast and like John Steinbeck in, in uh, one of his stories, uh, the frontier seems to end at the Pacific, but for Ray Bradbury, you look up and you see another migration potential. The question Bradbury, though, uh, has in his mind from the very beginning is the memory of what we've done to this world. Will we go to Mars and do the same thing with colonialism, exploitation, the natural resources? Will we do it all over again? And after the Martian Chronicles was published, he observed, you know, ordinary people are gonna go. Um, people with obsessions, people with dreams, good and bad. Uh, a lot of them are going to go and they're going to want to find a treasure. They're going to want to find crystals. Mm -hmm. And they're going to find out that Mars is not a crystal. It's a mirror. Mm -hmm. And the Martian Chronicles is really about us. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, again, what struck me, I remember as being as a kid, is that the fact that the Martians were brown skinned is... Normally, you would think, well, maybe the Martian is green or blue or any sort of other hue. And you think that, you know, there must be a reason for this. There must be something uh, uh, for this telling detail. And uh, let me ask you this, regarding to you know, the, this idea of exploration going out and going to Mars and being reflected, uh, you know, hopefully Mars serving as a mirror reflecting um, the um, good intention through the colonizers and uh, what, their, what their lives in their, uh, might actually be like. How much of this is about, because uh, I think I see this in some of his other work, how much of this is about people uh, distracting themselves? That in other words, uh, you know, we create more and more uh, technologies, we create cooler, if you will, ways of living. And yet there's, there seems to all be sort of a smokescreen for what's at the core of, if you will, of rot at the core. What do you think about that, Michael? 
So a, a couple of things come to mind um, as you uh, pose that question, Oscar. So on the one hand, uh, that seems almost this effect that you've described, distraction or escapism, um, I guess we could also describe it as. Um, you know, many scholars of science fiction and uh, many critics of science fiction have claimed for decades that that's kind of the fundamental function of the genre, right? <laughs> uh, to help us kind of escape from, uh, from reality. Um, sometimes this, uh, this notion is dressed up in expensive words. You know, uh, Darko Suvin, um, the, the great, uh, one of the great science fiction critics of the 20th century, I think his, his version of a, an expensive term for it was something like uh, meta-empirical, right? That it's, mm. it's a genre that stretches out beyond the empirics of reality, what we actually perceive in our day-to-day lives. And so, you know, one of the uh, one of the most interesting things about many of Bradbury's works for me is the way that it plays with and outside of, on occasion, um, the genres, multiple genres that he's been associated with, and in some ways, uh, you know, those those playings are um, oftentimes quite supple, right? So, taking a, uh, a a conceptual understanding of the genre. And then actually folding it into the narrative in that kind of way or folding it into one of the effects of reading the word. I think that's the mark of a, of a great artist, right? That's the mark of a, a great master who's able to, uh, to do things in the mind of a reader um, across a large statistical chunk of the folks that digest right. his work. So it's a great mark of his, uh, his ability. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit further before we get into more of the Martian Chronicles or Fahrenheit 451. Ray Bradbury uh, never goes to college, correct? He, right. um, he's a high school graduate, LA High School, Los yes. Angeles High School. <laughs> the old building, um, the old building when it still had crenellated castle look to it. Hmm. And he writes, I remember reading an, an introduction to one of his books. He talks about how he was a, a graduate of the library, of libraries and all the books that he just hoovered up. Um, is, it, is this a question of a, of a person with a gift whose, uh, um, whose love of reading pushes them towards realizing that gift? Or is this also just a question, too, of someone who proving that, you know, you can get an incredible education from just trying to satiate your curiosity at the library? But I love this. I love this so much because that literally is, this is my life. Like I, the <laughs> only thing that saved me was my tri- our trips that my mom would take us to the library, which was about 10 blocks away. So it wasn't even that close, but she would walk us, you know, it was five of us and we would walk to the library. And that was literally the only thing that saved me was because I was able to grab all these pick, these books. And I just want to say one thing is that the fascinating thing about Ray Bradbury is that he was writing about like when he would write about suburbia and, mm-hmm. and those things to me at the time, that was science fiction. <laughs> suburbia <laughs> was science fiction to me. Having a house was science fiction. <laughs> so I was, I was in it. Like I was already accepting these kind of other worlds that were so outside of what I was living, you know? So yeah, I love this idea that uh, you, there's talent, but there's also, curiosity and I feel for Ray Bradbury's work it was always being led with like this ferocious curiosity that fed him that was like okay what if what if is always the question right? yeah. yes yes I was struck um, in 
in thinking back on some of the things that I'd read about, um, read produced by him, and then also work that I've read about Bradbury in preparation for this, I was struck by the way that he would, on occasion, use the word librarian. Mm. So, of course, in his interactions in libraries, public libraries, university libraries, there are the individuals that work there that help you find books, that make sure you don't talk too loudly, and so forth. <laughs> But he would, on occasion, use the word as a um, as an identifier for himself, mm. right? So a person who has been steeped in, baptized in, rescued by, mm. right? Brought up within. I mean, that's what librarian meant for him as well. That this was not just a sanctuary, but a kind of civic temple for him, mm. um, in which he found himself, cultivated himself and then reached out to the world. It's really quite quite an amazing um, kind of notion. I've not seen, I still have yet to see that use of the word um, come from anyone else. I think um, I wanna start using it in that way myself because like Lilium, libraries probably saved my life too. <laughs> I think you've well, both, yeah, I mean, I, I both taken the measure of Ray Bradbury very accurately. Uh, here's someone who felt that books really hold the literal life of the author. And he always wanted to be on the bookshelves with those authors that he loved. Mm. And he realized that those who would burn books are actually destroying the author. And mm. if you destroy the author, you're also destroying your own humanity. And that's fundamentally at the core of this love of libraries that you all identify with Ray. You know, he, he got out of L.A. high school uh, in his yearbook. Uh, he wrote headed for distinction as the last line in his caption. And he wasn't fooling himself. He knew he was headed nowhere. He, <laughs> was, he came out of L.A. high. Uh, there's really no money in the family. Uh, for him to go to college, uh, he would, uh, you know, uh, sell newspapers in downtown L.A. Uh, every weekday afternoon for four years after high school, teaching himself, practicing writing, reading at the library. The library to him was everything. He wasn't that great a student in lectures in school or, or in classroom environments, but the library was his real education. He loved Carnegie libraries because they were dedicated to everyone to be able to read free, no matter where they came from. And his family was very poor, too. Uh, and so he really appreciated that, that the library, and he always felt it had to be free and open to everybody. And he did a lot to preserve libraries around the country, and especially in Southern California. There probably isn't a county in Southern California that Ray Bradbury didn't go uh, and, and lecture at the libraries and also helped to save their buildings, their original buildings, when they were uh, having budget problems. Yes, to, the, to his last breath, Ray Bradbury was a librarian, a keeper of libraries. I think following that, that trajectory, we are now going to definitely have to head towards talking uh, Fahrenheit 451. Um, I reread Fahrenheit 451 for this event. The last time I had read it, was in 1993, which was when they reissued the 40th anniversary copy of, 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 of the book. Yeah. Um, this time, I must tell you, it reads much less as speculative fiction. Um, it, it seems hardly speculative. Uh, it's also more brutal 
then I remembered it. Um, in the book, we have children who kill for sport. There's, there's bombers routinely screeching over the skies. Uh, the hugging down of suspected criminals, of course, is televised as entertainment. That, I do remember that. But then people are in like a drug-like state with those devices, the seashells, that bear a strong resemblance to earbuds. Uh, and they always have them plugged into their ears and they're awash in chatter. Nobody is really conscious of being alive in the book, even though, yes, it's also about book burning, since the title, it really seems to be like a meditation on all the ways a democratic society declines into a spiritual collapse. Uh, Michael, is there a powerful moral clarity in that novel work, do you think? I think so. I think so. And, you know, once again, uh, you've teed it up perfectly because it's such a, a subtle and supple magic that's operating in that work. I mean, think about what, what you've just said, the, the basic conceit of this, this, uh, this incredible work of art, right? That, uh, that books, uh, the destruction, the purposeful, organized, institutionally sponsored destruction of books marks the decline or perhaps just the, the total implosion of civilization, right? As we understand it, at least. And imagine virtually everyone that, uh, that read this book, millions of people in the 20th century, at least, having read it before, before we had these, um, sitting there reading a book, right? Like you, you're holding the thing that actually connects you to that world. You're almost forced. You're almost forced to imagine yourself in that world. It's almost as if the book in your hands is the entry point into the story itself, the story that's contained in the book, the physical book connects you there um, in that way. And I, I think that uh, that hits at another one of the, the really nuanced qualities of, uh, of Bradbury. So, uh, you know, John, I'd love to hear your take on this, but, you know, my sense has been that, you know, Bradbury was not really that interested in political art, right? Not really that interested in, in preaching to us, mm. but, of course, expressing his own sense of morality, expressing his own likes and dislikes, certainly, certainly, but teaching us things in that kind of didactic, heavy kind of way, I don't think he was, uh, he was really a big fan of that. But the, the books are so, so rich and they have their fingers so uh, intensely pressed down on the pulse of so many things that are important in society including efforts by, uh, you know, baby authoritarians to, to clamp down our imaginations, suppress them and so forth, that, uh, that it's very easy to, to absorb the books in that way. But, um, but I, you know, I, I wonder what he would think about uh, the way that we understand that dimension of his work, mm -hmm. right? The warning, the, the way we take Bradbury as a, as a kind of seer, as a kind of, you know, grandfather telling us, watch out for these new technologies. <laughs> he, um, right? that's, that's certainly in there, but I think of him more as, um, I, I'm not sure I want to call it an apolitical artist, but I think he would probably take issue with the way that much of even the most popular art right now is very intensely politicized. You know, that's, that's fascinating to me. Um, whenever he did write uh, didactic or preachy fiction, those stories didn't work. 
He had such a body of work and so many wonderful stories. The didactic ones never never worked at all. The preaching ones, uh, but but you see, he avoided that so much because he, he he told me once, the reason I'm successful is because I loved what I did. I loved writing. I did it for me and for the other people who loved what I loved. Okay. He 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 really was uh, an independent visionary. Um, he criticized uh, the, uh, the the far left and the far right if he felt that he found intolerance uh, at either end of the spectrum, or people who would say, "Oh, well, there's no such thing as intolerance." You know, he he disliked that intensely. He hated that intensely. But he also, uh, going his own way, he even made up his own definition of of uh, what he thought he was. He always said, especially later in the last four decades of his life. I am not a predictor of futures. You know, he, he's not particularly numerate. He wasn't trained in science. So he wasn't a predictor of futures. He was a preventer of certain futures. He enjoyed technology, although his, you know, he would use technology and science fiction pretty much as an armature to, um, uh, to build stories about the human heart, really, and about our emotions and, and who we are when we go from child to adult. But he always was was uh, he loved technology and what the potential of it was, but he was always suspicious of those who control the technology. Like Aldous Huxley in Brave New World, Ray Bradbury would ask the question implicitly, who watches the watchers? Mm -hmm. This is what I I find kind of fascinating about technology. Like, um, you know, I I write for young kids and there's always this thing of like, oh, there's, you know, they spend too much time on, you know, TikTok on, you know, what, and to me, I find it that this is, this is empowering tool like this, you know, on Twitter, we've seen actual political revolutionary movements occurring on Twitter, on TikTok. <laughs> so I would be like super fascinated to see what, how he would, inv- like what he would even think about what's going on and what's occurring now. When you look at, yes, there's, there's the, the fear, the evilness of, of technology, but there's also this amazing empowering tool that's being used by young people, you know? So I'm, I'm like, I, to me, I'm like, I would be like, I would have been super fascinated to have that kind of conversation with him to see what he would think. <laughs> but we think it's a question, not the technology, but what are you using it for? Um, is it something that you're using to dull yourself, to actually disconnect yourself? You know, it's almost an existential question. Or are you using it to uh, enrich your life in some way of making yourself feel more alive, aware that you're in the world, that you have a presence in the world, as opposed to, again, to get back to Fahrenheit 451, the horrible TV walls with their three dimensions and, you know, uh, essentially technology that replaces uh, your affections for people, where the technology itself and it's, 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 it's a, a version of life is what you ended up preferring as opposed to this very real life in front of you, which is, and I'll be curious to hear what you guys think about this, one full of discomfort, one full of pain, one full of disappointment. All these things, and it's which, much like Aldous Huxley and Brave New World, uh, 
you know, that we, we put ourselves in danger when we create technologies that are meant to erase these things that are just uh, prime to the human experience. You cannot live a life of total comfort. You cannot live a life completely free of pain or loss. Okay, so then I'm going to say it's a class issue, right? Because mm -hmm. of Instagram, you can put a filter on it. But because of iPhones or videos, we are able to see actual violence occurring to people of color. <laughs> so you know what I mean? It's like- Which is something that could jar you away. Who has control? Sure. Right, exactly. So who's control of, this, of the narrative now, you know? Right, because one thing we see in Fahrenheit 451 is that the narrative is highly controlled. People are not even, even on the eve of war being declared, people aren't quite sure what that means. Yes. You know? Um, and which, you know, John, to your point, to what you're saying about he's, you know, Rayberry saying, I'm not a predictor. This gives me a chill because you read something like Fahrenheit 451 and maybe it's like reading a diagnostic manual. Maybe this is what it looks like when it's too late. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, um, he, uh, uh, and, and I heard, and I heard uh, Michael come in for a second on that too. I think he and I are thinking of points in the novel like, where where he reads Dover Beach, the, 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 the 19th century poem, to Millie's friends. And before that, he sets it up by criticizing them because they don't know anything. Their husbands don't know anything about the world out there, you know? Um, uh, it, there's a question of science and human values here. Um, uh, you cannot have science conducted responsibly unless the scientists have a sense of human values to to you know keep things so that that uh, if you fail to watch the watchers uh, you don't destroy the whole planet and we always hope that it'll be that way uh remember that ray said and you know there are a lot of quotes of ray all over the internet one that that we really love in the center is the one where he says um you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture all you have to do is keep people from reading them and there again is the time of the brave new world they've got all these entertainments for these people so they won't think. Remember what Fire Chief Beatty says about young Clarice, who is the one who really reawakens Montag's doubts about that, that world he's in. Mm -hmm. Beatty said she was dangerous because she didn't ask how to do things. She asked why. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I, I wanted to get back to what Lillian was saying, just in terms of you know, technology and its uses that, you know, it really depends on, on what we're doing with these things. Um, you know, there's that, um, there's a, there's that part in Fahrenheit 451 where the, uh, uh, the protagonist Montag, who Ray Bradbury says is basically him, right? His stand-in, yeah. um, meets the old professor Faber, which might be a heavy wink to Faber and Faber. I'm a, I, I think the publisher and, uh, they're talking about, about books and their values, you know, which is clearly, you know, Bradbury as a person value very highly. And there's a wonderful quote where Faber then tells him, you know, about in terms of um, about what it, you know, is important, is, is, the, is the vessel more important than its contents. And he says to him, you know, to Montag, take it where you can find it, meaning the sustenance uh, in old phonograph records, old motion pictures and in old friends. Look for it in nature and look for it in yourself. Books were only one type of receptacle where we stored a lot of things. We were afraid. 
we might forget. So, John, that thing that we're afraid we might forget, is that our humanity? Oh, oh yes. Uh, you know, you have... You have three possible futures facing Montag, right? And they're epitomized by Professor Faber and Clarice and Beatty. And and which way will he go? Which way will you jump, Montag? Right? Uh, Faber says in the little earpiece when Montag unwisely goes up against Fire Chief Beatty toward the end there and ends up having to burn down his own house. Um, uh, Ray, Ray Bradbury was was very much concerned with who we are going forward in a world where we're living in an, uh, an environment of illusion. They don't know that that war is coming. They have no idea. The people that know are locked away somewhere on the military bases somewhere. And, um, and uh, the whole idea of remembering is so important in this book. Somebody has to remember and somebody has to bring back to the world at a later time. When we get to the city, right, at the end, when we begin to help the people, not realizing, of course, that uh, nuclear weaponry is incredibly devastating at that early time. But he is writing as we and then the Russians are both devising the hydrogen bomb, so much more powerful than the atomic bomb of the earlier of the earlier part of that uh, preceding decade. Um, but when we get to the city, we have to remember, we have to show compassion, we have to show pity, and we have to remember our humanity. You. I think, uh, John, you knew Ray Bradbury, uh, and Michael, you met him. That's right. And uh, my question is this, I mean, all the things that you just described, John, and, and William, you tell me what you think, I, uh, manifest themselves in his work as his generosity. I don't know how else to put it. Like even reading the Martian Chronicles, you even get this, there's a sense that he's always rooting for people to do the right thing that, you know, for, for, for people to wake up, he really doesn't want to punish them. That's to say, he, you get the sense that he doesn't want this terrible fate to fall upon them, knowing that it's preventable. And so I guess my question is, in person, was he like that? I mean, the reason I ask is, I'll give you a famous example of one. Um, you know, you hear stories uh, about a certain writers of, of horror or whatever, and of course, you, know, you expect them to be the most dour human beings ever, and they're not. They're like <laughs> incredibly bubbly. So I'm hoping he's not the opposite, where he writes these wonderful, uh, you know, stories full of life, and he's just like, you know, swatting people away from him. <laughs> I, I didn't know him as well as, as John, certainly. I only met him once um, many years ago in Chicago. Um, but I found him to be... Uh, quite jovial, right? There was a, a kind of childlike quality to him. Um, there were probably uh, 80 people in this space, all of us waiting to talk to him for a few moments and get a book signed. And he, uh, he looked like a, a big beardless Santa Claus, essentially, right? Like Santa Claus out, out of costume, right? And, <laughs> um, you know, that, that image for me fits perfectly with, uh, with everything I've ever observed absorbed from um, from his writings um, and also from the uh, from the books as well as the the things that went on to become uh, television or uh, or movies and you know one of the things that his um, his critics have uh, laid at his feet um, quite often is that that kind of uh, childlike sentiment um, is probably 
at the root of his efficacy, right? The way that he, he sticks, his story sticks so well to the minds of children, um, but that it, uh, the danger of it is that it, it slips sometimes into sentimentality, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it becomes a, a kind of Pollyanna-like uh, perspective on the world. And, you know, in my favorite works of his, um, in the Velt inside of uh, the Illustrated Man collection, that's, that's really the, the high point for me in ways that I'm happy to, um, to, to put on the table, the virtual table, the Zoom table. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he's got this, uh, this really, um, again, kind of nuanced way of pushing sentiment, um, even in the darkest moments, and again, like those critics say, on occasion slipping over, but usually staying just this side of that line that, again, indicates to me a, a real mastery of craft. You know, I would like to to follow Michael into the veld as well uh, to tonight. Uh, and I would just say, uh, in addition to what you guys have said, uh, is that he was, that gift he had was he found out early in life that the things you have to write about are what you know. And he knew about childlike wonder, and he knew about the emotions of the child, the hopes and fears, um, the hatreds and the loves, uh, the terrors and the joys of childhood, and how they translate into the adult world. And he never outgrew those things. You're absolutely right, Michael. He never outgrew those things. Uh, He was a guy who would see, he tells a story about uh, uh, going uh, past a a toy store window, because he felt toys, if you remember why you love toys, growing up because they they represent things then you'll never run out of metaphors because <laughs> toys stimulate metaphors and he'd see kids in front of the glass looking in and and uh, the older kids saying oh come on that's that's kid stuff and the little kid is there looking in and raised thinking and praying don't go don't go stay go into the toy store and finally he runs off and ray said oh it broke my heart because yes he writes about those things and how they translate into our adult world. He's fascinated with children. He almost thinks that at that time we're, we're different creatures, like the stages of, of, of chrysalis growing into adult uh, butterflies in a way. And children are very different, as we see in, in, in the veil. I, John, I thought you were going to say um, uh, uh, devolution, right? That that a child like mine would be the, the apex and everything after that is kind of a falling off, right? He. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he seems to be a, a, a guardian of uh, childlike states in himself and an, an encourager and um, a would-be catalyst almost, um, encouraging us to, to hold on to that, that childlike uh, quality. That's but, right. And he, and he reaches into the, the, the child in all of us. He would, say, he, would, he, he, he would say to me, never, never hesitate to ask for something if it means something important to you. Well, this is a sort of in some ways, again, sets up beautifully the Velt because what children, um, for, for those of you not familiar with the Velt, it's this, it's, it's this, this story about uh, a, a boy and a girl and their parents. And the children really, really love the playroom, which is um, basically another version of wall TVs that we see in uh, Fahrenheit 451. I actually see a lot of his work, this idea of these wall TVs. Um, and the kids love it, boy, they love it so much. But uh, it's supposed to have some sort of like psychological uh, um, uh, benefits to it. But as it turns out, the kids aren't really playing in imaginative lands of uh, TikTok, 
of, of people of, you know, of works of Tarzan or what, what have you. Instead, there's, they keep uh, conjuring up on the screens this veldt in Africa where lions seem to be in the distance chewing on something rather loudly. And what the, what the story will, will uh, 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 address is what that is. Uh, it is quite horrific. And, uh, the, and, you know, it's one of those stories too, I think to what you're saying, Michael, uh, where, uh, you know, um, it's not sentimental at all. It's maybe one of the few stories I've read of his where you kind of felt like he was saying, well, they kind of had it coming. You know, that's like <laughs> one of the very few ones where that generosity is missing. But I want to get back to because I want to ask Lillian something too. It's this, um, we talked about that moral clarity and I've been seeing something and I think this is something you brought up, Lillian, that for a lot of writers today, particularly people writing speculative fiction, and particularly a lot of those uh, authors of speculative fiction who are authors of color, Mm-hmm. That there's, they too, and this is how I, I want to connect this to Bradbury, but they too also to me have this sort of moral clarity about how the world works. Mm-hmm. And that seems to inform their novels and their stories in that same sort of way. I was wondering I, if you could talk about that. Yeah, I love, I love that's, that's really great that's happening right now in literature is how Latinx specifically Latinas writing horror and really kind of having these conversations and just going going right into the dark, right into the deep darkness. And I'm so, I'm like open. <laughs> I'm like excited about these works. And I'm, I'm talking about like um, Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melcher mm-hmm. and um, La- uh, Mexican Gothic by uh, Silvia Moreno Garcia. And uh, Tender is the Flesh by Augustine and Basterica, I think. And so they're tackling these really huge themes. And I'm, the conversation is back right back to Ray Bradbury. It's like, how do we talk about what's happening in the world and, and, and flip it in a way that is not only horrific, but brings in all these other questions and the what ifs again. And, and I love that it's it's Latinas who are kind of leading this this march <laughs> into like what what does what does horror look like what does like science fiction but even further out what does that look like right now and um, yeah I'm I'm fascinated I love these conversations that are happening right now in, in literature yes yes coming coming back to the the veld for for just a second and building on uh, Lilium's comments and what um, Jonathan was saying as well. Um, I'm continuously struck, and I, I read this uh, this particular work maybe once or twice per year, and just continuously struck by uh, a few things about it stylistically. Um, and as a writer, really, I'm betting you'll appreciate this too. One, it's just such an economical story, right? He's he's hitting on so many frequencies simultaneously, right? Just just really beautiful. I mean, at a certain level. Uh, the and you know Oscar gave us a nice um, summary and overview of the the work. On a on a certain level, it's it's classic uh, Bradbarian metaphor work, right? There are these references in it um, continuously to to Rima, um, and then references to Tom Swift. And if you think about what's happening in this this story, that it's it's kind of a parable about the uh, the the spectrum of potentials of turning one's life over to 
a deeply sophisticated technological system that takes care of you in all types of ways, but that you have no understanding of, right? You have no idea how this works. Sound familiar to anyone? It's, <laughs> it's, uh, right, it's a parable about, about this and it's hitting that frequency, but it does something for younger minds who aren't concerned with that kind of thing, at least most of them, um, by using those, those two symbols. So, you know, in mind reading, Rima is really a, a metaphor for uh, Rousseauan thought, right? Mm. Like a, a kind of mm. notion of what's lost when civilization comes online. We, as, as, as humans, if you will, um, exit uh, a state of nature and move into these artificial worlds deeper and deeper as time goes on, it seems. What's lost there? But then the Tom Swift reference, which is all about ray guns and right traveling around, having adventures that are all undergirded by some kind of technology, that feels to me like Francis Bacon. That feels to me like uh, a reference to uh, committing oneself, oneself and one civilization to the pursuit of better life through through science and technology, right? And so it it holds these two symbols up. And you you don't have to be some kind of nerdy, you know, uh, technology studies PhD in order to um, to enjoy the work. But <laughs> if you if you see those symbols, then it again it just resonates in a in a different kind of way. And it's even comical. It plays again with with comedy. There there are really two types of devices there. They're the uh, the house devices, if you will that are uh, compliant. Uh, at one point, the, the mother and the father are having a meal uh, that's made for them, right? It pops up out of the table. They, they don't clean, they don't cook, they don't do anything. Really. Right. They walk around in a befuddled state. But they, they're having a meal and one of the machines has made a mistake. There's no ketchup. And, <laughs> um, and I think the father notes this and the machine apologizes and out <laughs> squirts some ketchup. But then you have uh, you have the the field technologies, right? Like the ones who are out to quite literally dispose of the parents, and who ultimately do dispose of the parents. Sorry for anyone that's not read the story, but that's how it goes. They, um, Spoiler alert! Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's the ultimate it's, displacement of affections. But I guess my thing, and I love that he it is. It's so he 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 strips it down, right? But the the horror is. Is I, and I go right back to it because it's I grew up watching the Jetsons. I wanted a house like that. Yeah. And then you just see the the kids are the it's like the terror of the kids. Like there's nothing. He doesn't sugarcoat any of it, and that's what makes it even that much more horrific. That yeah. short well, story. Yeah. So let's cut to the chase. And so, are we living in the world that Ray Bradbury was trying to tell us don't do you know, to prevent? Well, you know, uh, to bring us full circle to the Martian Chronicles, I, um, I'm, I'm glad Lillian brought up the third expedition, which is, of course, uh, the most terrifying piece of suspense in the book. The very next story, the, f the, the fourth expedition, and the moon be still as bright, uh, you have uh, really, I think, the central question, that uh, insight he's trying to give about uh, humanity uh, in each of us is when the archaeologist of the fourth expedition, Spender, who in, by the way, in the miniseries in 1980, was played by uh, Bernie Casey, an amazing uh, black American actor, uh, recently passed away, unfortunately. But Bernie Casey plays that role so well. And the captain asks, uh, um, what did the Martians know that we don't know? They're so much older than we are. 
they knew not to ask the question we ask all the time. We always ask, why live? What's it all about? Why live? Why live? They knew that life was its own answer. I, I would say, uh, I was going to say that it's like, sorry. No, no, Lillian, please. Say that it's like the, that, that quest of, of, of the wants, right? It's like the shiny new object, the new technology, and, and, and it never, never feeding your soul ever, right? So, I mean, maybe that's what Ray was trying to say. We need to just look out, go outside and look out at the stars or something. <laughs> I, would, I would say for myself, um, can I say for certainty that we're living in the world they try to prevent? I don't know, but there may be uh, warning signs of heart palpitations and aches in your left arm. Um, I, think, I think that might work. So let's, uh, let me ask you some questions from our audience today. Oh, just, just, just before yes. that, I just want to register that I'm solidly in the, the yes camp. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding out hope. Definitely. <laughs> um, what, what, do the, what do you all think, of, uh, that Radbury would think, about the privatization of space, such as Elon Musk mm. sending a Tesla toward Mars? Progress, um, in quotes, or capitalist dystopia? Capitalism will kill you. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Well, John, is this not like the, the story from the Illustrated Man, The Rocket? Hmm. Well, uh, wouldn't it be lovely to think so? Uh, and, <laughs> and you, you know, he... Um, uh, the other thing he is, besides um, a champion of freedom of the imagination, which we've touched on tonight, and the great preserver of libraries and the precious gifts of literacy, literacy, which we've touched on tonight, is he's also the grand visionary for the space age. More than anyone else, his dreams became all of our dreams. All the scientists and astronauts, uh, space age uh, engineers, aerospace engineers, astronomers, astrophysicists, read him or encountered him at some time in their lives and and were inspired by him. And and uh, you have um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the tendency today to uh, look at the space program as something that can be dealt with in economics terms. And in one sense, it's a great notion to consolidate uh, the Air Force and Navy space resources in the new Space Command and invite in and make overtures to bring the private sector into it as well. I've talked to astronauts who are really excited about that and the possibility of not spending more money to get to space, but to pool the money and do it better. But that brings us back to Ray's original question, doesn't it? Who watches the watchers? Who's going to control it? Who's going to make the decision? And how much are we going to know about uh, uh, about the the ultimate goals and the ultimate payoff that the people backing it are going to want to uh, uh, to reap from the effort? Going to Mars is going to have a very complicated history. Yeah, I, I think of again that story, the rocket, where at the beginning of it, the old man. Uh, tells the guy who owns the scrap heap, you know, as he's looking up longingly at all the rockets taking off from Mars as tourism. So, yeah, they did that 80 years ago, remember? And we still can't afford it. Mm -hmm. It was going to be everyone would be able to do this 80 years later. None of us can afford to go, only the rich. 
Only that, is a, that is a beautiful story. Bodoni, the man who gives space to his children in the backyard by building the junk heap rocket. But, you know, um, uh, uh, Ray, Ray wanted us to be able to keep that dream, even if we can't go to space. He couldn't go. But the astronauts, he knew, were taking a little bit of him with them every time they flew because he was part of the space culture. The guy has, uh, he's got a, a crater named after one of his, uh, his novels, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Profound, profound impact on certainly the domestic space program and just the culture, the culture of, of space, if you will. But I have to wonder who introduced those, uh, those astronauts and those technologists, um, presumably at early ages to, uh, to Bradbury. I've yet to come across one who, uh, who, speaks of uh, Bradbury's work in a nuanced way. It's, it's all very much in a, in a pom-pom kind of fashion, <laughs> right? Like a cheerleading fashion. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think if you spend just a little bit of time, especially with the Chronicles, like you'd have to be just a little ambivalent about the prospects of going to Mars, right? Really? Just a little bit. Just a little a bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a mirror, it's a mirror, not a crystal. Indeed. <laughs> So this is a question, and I think maybe John, hopefully you can help us with that, I mean, or the rest of our panelists know about this. Uh, monorails and Ray Bradbury. Oh, yeah. Um, and we, you know, Zocal, of course, headquartered, you know, a big LA audience. And the Angelinos want to know, what happened to the monorail? Yes, uh, that was, uh, you know, he was a great dreamer of city planning as well. And he worked with certain architects like John Jurdy, uh, uh, John DeCure and others who, uh, uh, who were at least, they'd listen to him. He had no training, but he had ideas and they'd listen to him when they were designing malls, for instance, in Southern California. And of course the transportation infrastructure, uh, people would, would invite him in to talk and he had his ideas. He hated that the red car streetcars and the, and the green car lines were all gone. That broke his heart. He said, use those same uh, right of ways to build the monorail like Disney did. And he asked Walt Disney in the, in the early, early, in early mid sixties, uh, Walt, you need to get involved with this because you did it right out there in the park. Help the city do this. And Walt Disney says, hey, I'm already mayor of a whole city in Disneyland. I don't have the time to do that. But yeah, the, the monorail and same with the space age. Ray said we had to do it because it's in our nature to achieve. We explore because it's part of us. We innovate because it's part of us. But he had to rely on other people to work out the details. And, and, uh, and I think LA went with subway uh, and, uh, and not the monorail. And uh, uh, I think the decision point probably passed about 30, maybe 40 years ago. Ray Bradbury, skeptic of technology, but couldn't be further from being a Luddite. Right. <laughs> and uh, what about LA and, and, and his work? How do we see Los Angeles reflected? For me, um, it's in that short story, The Pedestrian. To me, that's about as LA a story as it gets. You get stopped by the cops for walking in LA. Um, but I'm sure uh, the city in some ways manifests itself in other ways, I should say, in his writing. Well, The Pedestrian was the great, uh, the great setup for Fahrenheit. Uh, he saw pedestrians as an indicator species, like the little frogs that mutate if we right. if we ruin their environment. 
uh, when we start collecting pedestrians and making them disappear, that's the beginning of the totalitarian state that will become Fahrenheit 451. That story was very important to him. Yeah, I, I would say also that, um, you know, again, I grew, up, I grew up in Southern California. I was born in LA. I was born in West Covina and raised in San Diego. Hmm. And reading the Martian Chronicles, I just kept thinking of Santa Ana winds. It's, hmm. it, it's sort of strange, but that's where my mind went to. In fact, for a lot of the seer places he, he writes about, that's what I think of. I think of like LA in the summer. I think of this melancholy, actually. The sort of melancholy I think that Los Angeles has that maybe people who don't live in LA aren't aware about. The way the mountains look at a certain way during sunset. The way that even though there are all these people, there's a sort of loneliness, you know, uh, to the point. Even the way that Los Angeles can evoke small town feelings. I know that even though Bradbury's from Wicagan, right? Wicagan, excuse me, uh, Illinois. Um, there's still that same sort of feeling of closeness in a lot of parts of Los Angeles, certain neighborhoods and certain communities. LA County is huge. Yeah, you know, that's, it's funny because now that I, I, I'm originally from New York and then I, I live here and I've been here for about 20 years. So reading the Martian Chronicles again, I could totally see what you mean about the Santa Ana winds and this, this idea of him being so rooted, like all his work is really so rooted in, in California. And so it was, fast. it was great for me to be able to like, oh, I understand it now. You know, I could see, I could see all these kind of like these landmarks, even if he is writing about Mars, you know, in a mm. way. So it was, it was great for me to see that now. Well, I, you know, I know that his, he moved out here because of his parents. But one wonders, even if his parents had never moved here, would he have come to California? That's, that links up to one of my thoughts about it. I mean, uh, you know, Los Angeles has um, an ex extended uh, a long history um, with uh, with science fiction in one way or another, right? Um, we, we have several decades worth of, of films, for example, that uh, that wouldn't exist without um, without props there, um, whether we're talking about Griffith Observatory or, um, or, mm. or several other places. There's that very famous hotel um, downtown whose the name of it escapes me, but it was essential as a as a prop and blade runner, for example. Oh, the Bradbury, the Bradbury building. building. There we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah. so, and so, my um, my sense is that um, it's it's kind of a a symbiotic relationship, right? That Los Angeles uh, imbues a, an extra aura, right, by virtue of the fact that he produced the great bulk of his work while effectively being a resident of the city that he's oh, in. His, yeah, his whole seven-decade career is, is exactly. in Los Angeles. So his first the, 14 years... He's in the company, in the yeah. company of uh, a great spectrum of science fiction authors. Mm. In Asimov? The, right, in the region as well, in Southern California in that mm. period. Um, but, uh, well, and of course, Asimov was part of the New York group, but okay. yes, if, if, if you think about it, Waukegan gave him the memories that became Dandelion Wine. But you're right, uh, Michael, his whole career is out there, and, and it's, you set up a good question to be answered, which is, what would Ray Bradbury be if he hadn't had the inspiration and the connections that he had with the science fiction, uh, uh, the Los Angeles Science Fiction uh, League chapter in the early days uh, there, where he met Heinlein and he met Lee Brackett and he met all, all the writers, Jack Williamson, or if he didn't have a Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Mount Palomar and Mount Wilson, if he didn't have uh, Hollywood, because he's very important in the history of Hollywood as well, 
he came to those things and it was just a natural fit, almost as if providentially he was led to be there. I think he was lucky as well, though, right? I mean, he always said luck luck played yeah. a big part. Lucky, <laughs> he, he landed there at the, at the right time, right? There were, right. There right. were many, many upwellings happening simultaneously um, and incredible fortune uh, meetings and so forth. And if it could have gone very differently for Bradbury, right? Campbell didn't think very much of him initially. Um, not, not as a hard science fiction writer at all. He had him exactly. kind of pigeonholed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It could have gone yeah. very differently. And so he he had some great for, fortune early on, I would say. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask one more question, I think, uh, for, uh, from our uh, from our audience. Um, this is I think it's pretty interesting. It kind of takes us back to the topic at hand. But uh, Fahrenheit 451 describes the manipulation of the news by the media. Uh, the quote is, they can hold their audiences for only so long. The show's got to have a snap ending. Mm-hmm. So in the end, is this a reflection of his times or is it our times? I mean, don't you feel like with all the stories that you've mentioned that we've talked about during this hour is that it's literally a checklist of what's happening now. <laughs> it is like, oh, yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> it's um, disturbingly too, too real. <laughs> yeah, he wrote, you know, he wrote for TV, he wrote for a decade for Alfred Hitchcock, uh, uh, they would use his stories, uh, adopt them, uh, and did work with The Twilight Zone and had his own series too. He, he respected TV when it could answer serious questions about our culture, but he knew the dangers, exact, exactly what you're saying, Lillian. He knew the dangers and he didn't trust uh, that side of TV at all. He also, he loved actors that he worked with, writers and directors, but you know, Hollywood executives, the people who spin all this media the way it is today, he had his reservations. And I think that that world that he was starting to see 50 years ago is kind of running the show right now as, uh, as well. Indeed, there's nothing new about authoritarianism or fascism. Mm. Right? There's nothing new about the illiberal tendencies that we see uh, on this very night, in my opinion, ascendant in our country. All of these things are, are old forms. They predate um, us on this um, this special night, and they certainly predate him. So, again, I think he um, he was exceptional for many reasons, but one uh, that's chief among them is his uh, his sense of the pulse of the culture. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's end it there. Uh, first of all, to our audience, thank you for your excellent questions, uh, and uh, thank you for joining us for the conversation. Uh, this video. Of the, tonight's conversation will be published on Zocalo's site, zocalopublicsquare.org. And as a podcast, you'll also be able to read a summary of discussion, short interviews with our panelists, and uh, many other essays and articles about women's history and social movements at the website. Uh, I want to thank you, Michael, John, Lillian, thank you uh, for uh, being with us, for sharing your ideas. Uh, I'd like to also thank the Fowler Museum at UCLA. Uh, who co-presented the event in connection with the forthcoming uh, exhibit, The Map and the Territory. And to all of you watching, we hope you spend the rest of your evening reading or rereading or otherwise contemplating uh, Bradbury and his stories. Thank you.